Our God reigns. You can flip over to Mark chapter 16. We're going to have a, a little different kind of a message today, not our usual. Uh, we're going to be looking at what some have called the longer ending of Mark's gospel. It's going to be Mark chapter 16, verses 9 to 20. Uh, and you can flip over there. Before I get there, I want to read a couple of other verses. Uh, in Psalm chapter 12, verse 6, David says, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. And Pat just read out of Isaiah 55. You heard there about how the word of God goes forth like the rain and the snow, and it accomplishes the purpose for which it has been sent. So if Psalm 12, 6 tells us that the word is pure, Isaiah 55 tells us that it's powerful. One more thing I want to read here, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Paul says to his disciple, protege Timothy, he says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. The word of God, not only is it pure and powerful, it's also profitable. There is not a single book of the Bible that does not have something to say to you and to your life. There's not a single page of scriptures that will not be profitable for your soul and for your growth in the Lord, and for your life in this world. The scriptures have no errors in them. There's no contradiction in the Bible. Uh, his words are pure. They are powerful. They accomplish that for which God has sent them. And they are profitable for us. And I want to open with that as we're going to be looking into the this section of Mark's Gospel is we are looking at some things that can be difficult or can be troubling. Um, but my goal by the end of today and at the end of our time here is to, to help reaffirm in your heart the purity and the power and the profitability of the, world, the word even as we uh, look at these verses here. So I want to open with prayer now. Father, thank you for your word, your very precious word, Lord. We would not know uh, who you are apart from that. Thank you, Lord, for the way that you have revealed yourself. Thank you for the way that you have spoken in these latter days by means of your son. You have spoken through your son, the word, to us. And we pray that you would help our hearts to understand as we think through these things, and that you would, uh, as well, that you would give us a greater confidence in this word that you have given us, and give us joy in you, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. 
I'm going to read these verses here, Mark chapter nine, uh, 16, verses 9 down through verse 20. I'm going to ask four questions after I read it and work through four questions as we approach these verses. One, is it original? Are these verses original? That's to mean, did Mark himself write these verses? Second, uh, if not, how did they get there? Third, what do we do with them? And fourth, can we trust the Bible? I want to read these verses, uh, Mark chapter 16, verse 9 and following. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. So those are our verses there. Uh, you may have in your Bible translation captions around verses 9 down through verse 20. Uh, you may be familiar with what is going on here, why those captions are there. You may be a little familiar. Maybe this is the first time you've even heard about the question about whether these verses are original to Mark's gospel or not. And uh, so my first question I want to work through is the question, are these verses original? And I've taken some time to research the matter over again, study into it. Uh, as best I understand, these verses are not original to the gospel, meaning that Mark wrote this gospel and ended at verse 8, uh, and that verses 9 through 20 came in at a later time. Uh, and I want to take a little bit of time just to describe how we ended up getting these Bibles in our hands. Uh, not the whole history of it, but, but at least a little bit of it, to get us some context so we understand. Um, the, the Bible as we have it uh, didn't just appear out of nowhere. Uh, God spoke to his people through generations. Uh, some of the oldest, perhaps Job is the oldest book of the Bible, and that book might be close to 4,000 years old. There aren't a lot of things around today that were written 4,000 years ago. I don't know if there's anything else. Maybe Hammurabi's law code, perhaps. But uh, not, not a lot else. Uh, and the oldest books were written. Uh, originally, they were given by God to, to men 
who wrote them down, and they were written on maybe papyrus, so it'd be like a, uh, like a reed parchment paper. Um, there's different things that people wrote them on. You know, we've got, of course, Jeremiah talks at one point as he's, he writes his prophecy down on a scroll, and one of the evil kings has it read, it, read the scroll to him, and he cuts off sections and throws it in the fire as Jeremiah's giving him this prophecy from the Lord. So we know they're written on scrolls in some cases. Uh, in one point, uh, God writes down the Ten Commandments uh, somehow with his finger on stone, uh, and then we know Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments broke those stones, uh, or perhaps actually that was Moses. I do love the fact that in the Old Testament we see uh, God points out to Moses, the Ten Commandments that I gave you I wrote on stone, which you broke. <laughs> so anyways, it's a side note. Uh, so God inspires his people to write. Uh, Peter tells us in 2 Timothy, uh, excuse me, 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, that he moved on the men of old, uh, I'm paraphrasing this, and, and they wrote under the inspiration of God. I, I do want to read it. I don't want to just do that one from memory here. As you can see, my memory is not serving. 2 Peter chapter 1. Uh, verse 19, we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Verse 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So God moved these prophets along in the writing of the scripture. And uh, this is just the mystery of God's word that uh, men wrote in the style that they would write in, in the vernacular and the words they would use. They used that. And yet God's Holy Spirit so superintended what they wrote that every single word was the very word of God. And in those inspired words that God gave, not a single one of those words are in error. Not a single one of those falsely represent God. Everything that God has spoken by his spirit through his people in the scriptures truly communicates about God. Uh, there's no error. There's no falsehood. Uh, there's, no, there's nothing wrong by fact or by truth within the scriptures. Uh, God superintended the process of his work in that way. And so that's the process by which God gave the word. Uh, how we get the Bibles as we have them, uh, those books in the Old Testament were recognized by the, the Jewish people as special, set apart from the rest. And at a very early point, the Jewish people started writing down the scriptures and copying them. Uh, and copying them over again, and copying them over again. And uh, they, there was all sorts of uh, quality control, if you want to call it that way, of making annotations in the note that the middle word of this book is this. And this word occurs in this book this many times. All, all of these things, just to make sure that they were getting it right when they were copying the scriptures. Uh, they cared so much about the preservation of God's word. Uh, until 
uh, let's just say 100 years ago, the oldest copy of the Old Testament books of the Bible that we had was about 1,000 years old. There was the Masoretic community in uh, Jerusalem and around the area, that uh, the Masoretic community of Jews, they copied the scriptures over and over again. And so the, the Hebrew of the Old Testament, we had dated back to about 1,000 A.D. that we, we could tell. Uh, you know, that might not seem modern. You know, a thousand years ago is not really modern in some ways, but you know, again, we're talking about passages that are 2,500 years old, um, 3,000 years old or more. Uh, and so some said, well, we, didn't, we don't know if we can trust the reliability of the Hebrew manuscripts uh, of the Old Testament. Uh, and then in the Judean wilderness, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in the 1940s, which go back a thousand years. A thousand years older. So these, these manuscripts are from the time of Christ, basically, that these were being copied. The Dead Sea Scrolls, the Masoretic text, are very, very similar. They're remarkably close. So that pushes back our dating of the Old Testament Hebrew a thousand years. Uh, that is how rigorous the process of copying the Jewish people were, of copying their scriptures. Uh, and when we get to the New Testament... Uh, the letters of the New Testament were, were sent out. You can think of the Gospel of Mark, for instance. Mark wrote his Gospel, and then he most likely sent this to the Church of Rome. It's likely that this, the, the audience, first audience was Rome. And if you wanted to get a copy of the Gospel of Mark, uh, you know, you, you couldn't turn your phone on and find it. Uh, you, you couldn't go to the Christian bookstore and buy a copy of it. If you wanted a copy of the Gospel of Mark... You had to take it in your hands, set it down, you had to get a candle and a quill and some ink, and you had to copy that thing down by hand. Could you imagine doing that? Word after word after word after word. You know what? The early Christians did that. They copied the New Testament over and over and over again. They made copies of the copies. They made more copies of those copies. They made copious amounts of copies of the letters in the New Testament. From what we've been able to find so far, we have over 5,000 different manuscripts of the New Testament that have survived. Now, some of these are entire books. I had the pleasure uh, of being in London in the King's Library. They have the, the copy of the Codex Sinaiticus. It was a book that was found on Mount Sinai. It is the complete New Testament, all in one book, and they got it there under glass. They didn't let me touch it. I'll forgive them someday, perhaps. But no, that's actually better I didn't. But they, uh, you've got entire books, some of those. And their they're, uh, Codex Sinaiticus, I think, is 1,700 years old. Uh, there's, there's other, uh, I won't get into all the details and get totally nerded out on you. But there's all sorts of copies of the New Testament. There, there's really nothing else in antiquity that is as backed up as the writings of the New Testament. Uh, and they're not just in one area. We've got uh, a, text, a family of texts in North Africa and in the Middle East, and then up into what is uh, today Turkey, uh, of the communities of Christians who cared so much about the word that they copied, that word for word for word. Which brings us to the next thing. When I talk about the purity of the word of God, that every single word is pure and without error, without fault, that is as God gave it in the original manuscripts. As God communicated to his prophets and they wrote that down, that is without error. 
the reality is we do not have a single handwritten copy of any of the books of the Bible in the sense that Mark sits down and he writes it and we still have that handwritten copy from Mark. We don't have that for any of the books of the Bible. And I, I think part of that is if we did, I think people would set up a shrine to them and worship those books. Uh, but the question is, do we have a faithful representation of those books by the early Christians and by the early Jews who copied them? And the answer to that is absolutely. As these manuscripts are compared to each other, there are variations. Uh, you, if when I was growing up in school, I had to write everything down by hand when I wrote papers and stuff. And maybe you've had the experience. You, you write on a line, you get to the end of the line, you use the word the in a sentence, and then you go to the new line and you forget that you wrote the word the on the end of one line and you start it, the new line, with the word the. And then when you read it again later, you realize you did a double the. Uh, you maybe know the experience. Uh, the, the, those who copied the scriptures down they made occasional errors like that. Uh, they might have forgotten a word. They might have uh, added another word in here or there. But you know what? When you put those together, it's very obvious where an error is made like that. Uh, and when you put all of the manuscripts together of the New Testament, there is a remarkable similarity between all of it. So that we can say with incredible confidence that we have the letters written by the authors of the New Testament. So then, what do we do when we get to a passage like this? This is a strange one. There's very few occurrences like this in the Bible. There's this passage here, and we have John 8 with the woman caught in adultery. They are two texts that when we put the manuscripts together, we see that they came in at a later date. Uh, for this section of Mark's Gospel, the reason why I don't believe it is original is that the oldest manuscripts do not include it. And so, so then some manuscripts that are newer, if you will, they're still like 1,600 years old, I mean, so they're really old, many of them include it, but then they include notes on the side that the oldest manuscripts don't include them, and that's not talking about the two we have that, we're talking, that I was just referencing, uh, but actually the other ones that haven't survived, uh, they also don't have them. Uh, so that's, if you will, the external witness to it that these are not original. Uh, I won't go into all of this, but there's also things within the Greek text itself, words that are chosen, the way that it transitions, that would seem like this was probably something that was brought in later. So then I want to go to our next question. it would be a sh little bit shorter question than the first one. Uh, how did these verses get in there? If these verses are not original... How did they get there? Why are they there? As best I can understand, uh, what probably happened was a well-meaning Christian, uh, having read Mark's Gospel, copied Mark's Gospel, wanted to bring something in as a summary. Uh, if you study verses 9 to 20, you'll see that pretty much it is pretty much a summary of the other Gospel endings and the early part of Acts. Uh, when, if you're reading through Mark's gospel, you get down to verse 8. It's a very abrupt ending, and it's very anticlimactic. Jesus raises from the dead, and he tells the women to go and tell everybody about it, and they run away scared. <laughs> That's kind of anticlimactic for what you would expect. You, know, you spend all these chapters on the death of Jesus, and then the resurrection of Jesus gets a few verses. Likely what happened is somebody wanted to 
in sending the letter, write something like an appendix to go along with the letter. Not everybody had access to all the Gospels. And so I believe this well-meaning Christian wrote something like an appendix to, to fill out some of the details, and that went along as a supplement to the Gospel, and as it was copied, that continued to be copied. Uh, some Christians made notes, hey, this isn't part of it, but this is going along with it. And eventually, uh, the way that human nature works, the notes got less, and it fell out of, the, the, those notes fell out, and it was included and got copied along with it. That is, the best of my understanding, how this is here, how we have it in our text here. A more important question then how did it get there, I would say it would be, what do we do with it? Uh, if these verses are not original to the gospel, what do we do with it? Now, we see in Deuteronomy and in Revelation, there are warnings about taking away from the word or adding to the word. Uh, you don't want to do either. You don't want to take away from the word. You don't want to add to the word. I understand the seriousness of what I'm saying this morning, that if I'm wrong... It would be charged against me that I have taken away from the word. I take that very, very serious. Uh, and so I feel accountable to what I know. We're not accountable to what we don't know, but we are accountable to what we know. And so as best I understand, I believe these verses are not original. But what do we do with it? Now, practically, what do we do with it? I, I appreciate what the translators of many modern translations have done. They've kept them, but they make notes about it. Uh, I think that's a good approach. The reality is, for a long, long time, hundreds of years, Christians have simply had these verses and just assumed they were part of Mark's gospel. And there, there's a sense in which I, I, I think it's right to honor that. Uh, at the same time, uh, as we, we think about it, I think it's good, as we know with what we have in the manuscripts, to make these kinds of notes. I guess the even more important question is, what do we personally do with it? As you're reading along in Mark's Gospel and you come to these verses, what do you personally do with it? And that, I think, what the best thing to do with is that where these verses correspond with things we find taught elsewhere in the New Testament, then we can receive them as reminders of what is taught. And where there are matters that are not taught in the New Testament then I think we need to be wary about adhering to those. And I'll just walk through the text briefly and just show you what I mean by that. So in verses 9 to 11, uh, now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept, but when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. Now, we take those verses. Uh, he rose early on the first day of the week, clearly taught elsewhere, including Mark's gospel earlier. Uh, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene. You see that in John chapter 20. Uh, he had cast seven demons out of Mary. Luke's gospel tells us that. Uh, she went and told those who mourned and wept. They had heard that he was alive. They didn't see him, but they, they did not believe it. Uh, I think it's John's gospel reference, no, it's Luke's gospel references that when the women told them, they thought that they were speaking idle words. Okay, so for these verses, we see these points taught all over in the Gospels. They're, they're taught elsewhere. Uh, verses 12, 13, After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. 
Does anybody have an idea of where that might be taught elsewhere? Exactly, yes. That's very much what we see in the, the journey to the road of Emmaus of the two disciples on their way there. Now, one question is, did they believe, did they not believe? We certainly see that when Jesus appears to the disciples there, they're, they're shocked and have some level of disbelief there. So it seems like that's taught <clears throat> there in, in Luke's gospel, Luke 24, I believe. Uh, verse 14 and following, after he appeared to the eleven themselves and they were reclining at table, he rebuked them because of their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they did not believe those who he had saw and risen. Well, we're used to Jesus rebuking his disciples, especially in the Gospel of Mark, so that, that may be well taught elsewhere. Said to them, go into all the world, proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. Uh, we get in, here in the verses following, uh, in essence, the Great Commission that we see in, in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. The call to go out, evangelize the world, to baptize, to preach. And then following, there are accompanying signs that will happen through the apostles, through the followers of Jesus, that will validate the message that they're getting. And, and here's where we get to some things that are taught and some things that we don't see in the New Testament. It says, the, verse 17, These will be the signs that will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues. Hey, we see that in the Gospels, we see that in Acts. Uh, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover uh, okay, so we see Peter, Paul, laying their hands on sick people, and they recover. Uh, we see Paul shipwrecked on the island of Miletus, I believe. He makes a brush fire. He picks up some, uh, some brush to throw it on the fire. Turns out there's a snake in it. He gets snake bit. He absolutely should have died. And the people are just sitting there and waiting and watching. Is Paul going to keel over dead? And he doesn't. Although he got bit by a snake, God miraculously preserved his life. He should have been dead. He didn't. The one point that we don't see taught in the New Testament is that they will, uh, if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. Now, we don't get any examples of that that I'm aware of in the New Testament. Uh, some have taken these passages and said, well, to show your faith, you should handle serpents and you should drink poison. Now, first of all, even in this text, that's not actually commanded. It's simply said that this will happen. So there's a little bit of difference there, but by implication, perhaps, it's being called on to be done. Uh, I would say that you should not drink poison as a show of faith. I, I don't think that you should handle snakes as a show of faith. Because, I, again, I do not believe that that is original. This is the one point that's not taught elsewhere in the New Testament. Uh, and certainly we have heard of, you've probably heard of, church services where they've sought to handle snakes. And it has not gone well for many people. People have died, apparently, handling snakes, uh, trying to follow, follow this. Uh, what, what is this about here, if that's in here? Now, as best I understand, we have the example of Paul. He gets bit by a snake. God preserves his life. Um, the, the piece about drinking poison, deadly poison, and surviving, my guess is that as the gospel went out, this kind of thing did happen. Uh, it was 
not uncommon in that day that people would be executed by making them drink poison. It was, I would say, like a, a more painful form of the lethal injection uh, in that day. Uh, in four, around 400 B.C., the city of Athens executes uh, Socrates. It was Socrates. They execute Socrates uh, on the charge of corrupting the youth, and they make him drink a cup of hemlock by which he's poisoned and he dies. That's the kind of thing that would happen. And so probably... As the gospel is going out, Christians are being persecuted uh, and they're being executed by different means. I'm sure that some of them were executed by poison. They took a cup of poison, they were forced to drink it, and by a miracle, God preserved their lives. That, that is how I would think this is probably there. Uh, it is something that I am sure happened in the early church. Uh, and as it's being relayed and written down, that detail Came in. We don't see it in the New Testament, um, but we see it relayed here. I, I don't think it's just some fanciful kind of thing tossed in. It probably is the kind of thing that happened in the early church. So then verses 19 and 20, uh, if you've spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven, sat down at the right hand of God. They went out, preached everywhere, why the Lord worked by them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. See again there, the Lord ascends, he's seated at the right hand of God. And he works through his people. Uh, we see that in the book of Acts very clearly. Last question that I want to end on for this briefly uh, comes back to the question, can we trust the Bible? If we have a passage like this, verses 9 to 20, that are likely not original, can we trust the Bible? Does this just throw it all out so that we just can't trust anything? Well, I will say people will say that. Uh, it is a common argument from Muslims. They'll say, well, the Bible's, Bible's not, not true. It's been changed. It's been changed along the way. You had uh, Dan Brown with, uh, what's the book, The Da Vinci Code, back in the double odds, talking about oh, how the Bible's been changed. That was historical fiction. It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't anything real. People got caught up in it. But there have been different charges. that The Bible's been changed. Uh, and if it has, we would be in trouble. Question is, has it been changed? And can we trust the Bible? The answer is no, it has not been changed. The way that charge is usually meant is that the entire thing has been manipulated and worked for agendas and whatnot. Uh, and that's just simply not true. As we compare all of the manuscripts we have, it is simply a false argument that the Bible has been changed. There's not another book in the world that has the level of validation of authenticity that the Bible has. Not another book. This is the only book that has the kind of raw evidence to validate that we're actually handling what the original authors wrote. Along with that, though, there's another important aspect. Not just do we have the original book, which is absolutely important, but can we trust the God of this book? Can we trust the one who has spoken? And the answer to that is yes. I hope that in your lives you are finding that to be the case. That is the, the process of the walk with the Lord that we all have. We walk with him. We see what he wrote, and he validates his message. Uh, even as he did then, he is still validating his message in our lives. He's working that out. But it is a walk by faith, isn't it, as we walk with the Lord? Uh, Noah has a little Voice of the Martyrs book, and uh, 
relays stories of the Bible. And at the end of this book, tells a story about a little boy who's in a Muslim context. This really happened. And he converts to Christianity. And he's in school, and he, he speaks up for Christ. And his teachers take him aside and say, no, you can't believe the Bible. Don't believe the Bible. The Bible has been changed. And his response, I think, is perfect. He said, no, the Bible has not been changed. Those who read it are changed. And anybody who's walked with the Lord knows that to be true. The word changes us. The word has not been changed. Well, that was a different kind of message, wasn't it? So that's not what we normally do. But I wanted to to address these verses at the end of Mark's gospel. I hope that I cleared something up rather than muddied the waters more for you, and I am more than happy to talk with anybody who has any questions about this. The word of God is reliable. Uh, It is worthy to be trusted because the God it represents is worthy to be trusted. We're going to transition now to a time of communion. Uh, I'll ask the men